Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Patrick Schreiner. He is professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of many books, including The Kingdom of God and The Glory of the Cross. Uh, Our topic today is a new book of his entitled The Ascension of Christ, Recovering a Neglected Doctrine. Welcome, Professor Schreiner. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Mark. It's good to be here. Strange word in the title there. Why is this doctrine neglected? Yeah. Well, one of the things I, as I continued to think about the Ascension, and uh, it really started early on in my studies of uh, biblical studies and just going through the Bibles, I, I found there's not a lot of books on the Ascension. And there's not a lot of sermons on the Ascension in some traditions, probably more the low church tradition. If you're in a higher church tradition, you might um, celebrate Ascension Sunday, which I think is probably a good idea just to remind people of why the Ascension is important. But yeah, if you look through the Bible, um, you know, only Luke narrates the Ascension at the end of his Gospel, at the beginning of Acts. Matthew, Jesus is still on the mountain, right, speaking to his disciples, giving them the Great Commission. The end of Mark is, you know, a little confusing, but the people are running away in fear. And so at the end of John, Jesus is still there talking to his disciples, reinstating Peter. So Yeah, when you come to the Bible, you actually wonder, is the Ascension really important? And as I studied, really started studying in in more depth Acts and the sermons in Acts, I recognized, man, when Peter and Paul preach Jesus, they preach the Ascension, and they view it as kind of this climactic work that I think sometimes we don't talk enough about, about. And part of the reason we don't talk enough about it is I think we're a little unsure of why this needed to happen at the beginning of Acts the disciples are out on the Mount of Olives and Jesus is ascending. They're kind of left staring there into heaven. I think in many ways we're like them. We're kind of left staring to heaven, wondering if Jesus being here on the earth and being with him bodily is the best kind of state to be in the new heavens, new earth. Why did he need to leave? So that, that was really the impetus behind studying this. And um, yeah, I just, it's one of those things like in the Bible where if you start paying attention to the Ascension, you start seeing it everywhere. That happened to me with exile, too, when I first started studying the Bible. I I never thought about the exile, and then you start seeing the theme of exile, and it's everywhere. And as I point out to people, if you start looking for Ascension, you start seeing it everywhere as well. You, and you just covered some of them, you list some of the reasons why the, why the Ascension has been neglected. You do five, again, you hinted just now, but you give five specific reasons why we should not neglect the ascension. Do you want? Do you want to amplify on what you just said? Yeah, sure. Well, as I as I mentioned, the first Christian sermon, the ascension, installs Jesus according to Peter's sermon in Acts two thirty six as Messiah and Lord. Another thing I noticed, just in terms of church history, is if you go through the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, First Council Council of Constantinople, Athanasian Creed, 
most of the early creeds have a separate line about the ascension. So they view it as a distinct act. It's different than the cross. It's different than the resurrection. So the early church thought it was really important to affirm the ascension. And then I'd say canonically, you know, there is a transition in the scriptures from Jesus with Jesus life to post Jesus life in terms of what, how does the church act now that Jesus is gone? So if you begin kind of paying attention to the importance of the ascension, both in the history uh, of, of the church in the Bible itself, you start to see it all over the place. And, you know, I mentioned at the end of Matthew, there's no ascension, but in another sense there is because Jesus alludes to, or even quotes from Daniel seven, when he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, that comes from Daniel seven thirteen and 14, which is speaking about the son of man ascending before the ancient of days. And so in, in a very real way, Matthew is speaking about the ascension. He's just not narrating it. So the Christian church historically has thought the ascension was a climax of Christ's work, that Christ's work is really not complete until he ascends to the Father. And now there's multiple climaxes in terms of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. But one theologian put it this way, and I think this is helpful, that the resurrection affirms that Jesus lives in that forever. The ascension affirms that Jesus reigns in that forever. If our gospel can be summarized in terms of Jesus is King or Jesus is Lord or Jesus is Messiah. He is not installed as King over heaven and earth until his ascension. There, that is, as you watch Kings ascend to a throne, like we're in America, I'm in America here, right? But so I'm not watching uh, Kings ascend to the throne, but they do ascend in some sense on inauguration day. And there's a sense throughout the world that you watch earthly rulers ascend to a throne and that's really what's happening in the ascension. Jesus is ascending not just to an earthly throne, but to a heavenly throne. And so it's really basic to kind of our gospel message. Mm -hmm. Before the ascension, you say it's important that we recognize how Jews in Galilee first see Jesus. I mean, before we see, maybe, maybe, maybe we've got the miracles, but before the ascension, there is a distinct difference in the way they regard Jesus? How do they regard Jesus? Are, are, they, are they correct in their first impressions? Yeah, I'd say in one sense, yes. In another sense, they don't understand fully who Jesus is. So it seems from the Gospels that they view Jesus as a prophetic figure. So as, if you think about the Gospels, even Jesus asked the question to Peter, who do people say that I am? They list, well, they think you're Elijah or one of the prophets. Or, and then when, when he goes into different towns, they say, oh, a prophet has arrived because he was great in signs and in wonders and speaking the word. And so they view him as a prophetic figure. But I think slowly over the span of those three years of Jesus' ministry, they start to realize, and we get this idea from Peter as he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's more than a prophet. But I think that reality is ultimately stamped upon really their consciences when he rises from the dead and ascends to the right hand of the Father. Then they realize, okay, he is the Messiah and the Lord, the King of Kings, the ruler that we've been waiting for. And so in a very real sense, what we're getting in the Gospels, I think Mark actually takes us a little bit more for looking at the different Gospels on that discipleship journey where they're trying to figure him out. But, you know, Matthew just begins with Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, which is pointing to the son of David. He's a kingly figure. So this disciple of Jesus recognizes, but I, that's post, right, ascension, post all these things have happened. He's recognizing, oh, he's more than a prophetic figure. He's actually the king of kings. So I tend to think 
the early writers and the early followers of Jesus came to understand ultimately who Jesus was. And we see even in Acts, as Peter preaches and Paul preaches, they say, you crucified this man in ignorance, not knowing truly who he was, but now I'm declaring to you who he truly is. And then he points to him rising from the dead and sending to the right hand of the Father and say, oh, this is, this is more than a prophetic figure. This is a kingly figure. This is a priestly figure. And ultimately, this is the second person of the triune God. When people see Jesus recognize him after the ascension, do they look back at his words, the Sermon on the Mount, say? Do they see his, his words, his parables, his sermons in a different way? You mean after the resurrection when they see him? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I think they do. I think they recognize something unique has happened with this figure, but there's, there's a difference. I, I, the, you know, the New Testament, one of the famous stories I like to go to is when Jesus rises from the dead at the end of John and Mary comes to him in the garden and she clings to him, but he says, don't cling to me because I haven't yet ascended to the Father. So while the resurrection and the ascension, I think this is what your question is getting at, and correct me if I'm wrong as I go along here, but while the resurrection, yes, uh, affirms that Jesus is this figure that will live forever, and in some sense they recognize he's, he's, a, un- he's a unique figure because no one else has risen from the dead in the same way he has, that his kingship is not complete in terms of he's not installed to the right hand of the Father until the ascension. So one of, one of the issues that I think we run into in terms of a lack of thinking about the ascension is we do kind of combine the resurrection and ascension as just the exaltation of Jesus, which is not all bad, but I do think we need to distinguish between those two acts. So there, in another way to say it is like even at his baptism, Jesus is anointed as the king or he's designated the king, but he's not installed as the king of heaven and earth until his ascension, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then there's another sense in which he's installed on the cross. So I, I want to make sure that we both recognize the cross, resurrection, and ascension are distinct, but they're also tied together. They're a singular script. So I don't want to push too far and say, well, you know, really the resurrection doesn't matter. The ascension is the one that matters. Well, he can't ascend unless he lives forever. And he only ascends because he has accomplished the work on the cross. So really at the end of the book, even I I try to put our eyes back on those key events, even the incarnation where the ascension doesn't actually take away from the incarnation. It, it affirms Jesus's bodily existence. He exists as a bodily in bodily human form now, an exalted body, but he does. So that, that affirms the reality of the incarnation. It doesn't re, uh, reverse it. So, so to, uh, to the Jews, Jesus, before the ascension, his words are the words of a prophet. They are prophecy. They are inspired by God. After the ascension, they are the words of God. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't. I like to think of it a little bit more in terms of a sliding scale, and so that they're coming to recognize that he's more than a prophet throughout his ministry, but that that reality is stamped into their minds in a more official sense after the resurrection and the ascension. And so, right, we have Peter confessing, "You are Messiah. You are the Son of God." At Caesarea Philippi, so they are recognizing something before the ascension. But I, I think that Jesus or God the Father, uh, to put it more precisely, fulfills the hopes of the messianic figure in the resurrection and the ascension. And then that reality is confirmed for them. Yes, this is the Messiah. Yes, this is the Son of God. And so that 
they know it's true now because they, again, according to Acts, they've witnessed these things. They're witnesses to the resurrection. They saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. And that's what they preach. They're witnessing to the abundant life and reign of the triune God as seen in Jesus Christ. Now, you relate the ascension also to the conditions for the establishment of the church, correct? Yeah. What do you mean by conditions there? Well, that this is really the church is possible because of of the ascension that that is happening. Yeah. The church has to follow that. That's right. Yeah. So what I tried to do in my book was we can talk about Jesus's ascension in terms of, and we have been talking about this in terms of his installation at the right hand of God. But I also think it's important to think about what is Jesus doing now? We like to think about what Jesus has done in the past and what he will do in the future. But we don't always think about what is Jesus doing now. And I think if we take that kind of prophetic, priestly, and kingly view of Jesus, the anointed offices, the kind of messianic offices, it actually helps us zero in on what exactly is he doing in the heavens now. Him him sitting at the right hand of the Father isn't like he's resting and just waiting for it all to come to conclusion. No, he's still acting. So, what that means in terms of his prophetic ministry is he continues to build his church after the ascension in a unique way. And so the church is actually established in many senses after his ascension at Pentecost as the Spirit comes down. So you have lines like in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, it's better if I go away because then the helper will come to you. The paraclete, the comforter is going to come to you. And he is, I think what the Holy Spirit does ultimately is God's presence and dwells believers, and they then become pictures of God's presence who then welcome others into that God's presence, kind of the new temple community. So really, the role of Jesus, his prophetic role, is that he sends the Spirit, which then extends God's presence throughout the earth as his disciples witness to the kingly reign of Jesus. So he continues to build his church uh, in the heavens. He's not docile, or we don't believe in a deistic Jesus Christ who's waiting for anything. No, he's continuing to act. There's going to be a final climactic revelation of his kingship at the end, but he's continuing to act, building his church. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You refer to something you call shadow stories of the priest's ascent. What is a shadow story here? Yeah, it's kind of a phrase that I, you know, I probably took it from someone else as I was reading books. I don't exactly remember, but um, shadow stories are simply, when you come to the New Testament, they a lot of times have narratives that actually end up having um, a story that is very much like that other story going in the Old Testament. So I think we know this reality if, if anyone's Star Wars fans and you started to watch some of the new or even the old movies where it begins on, I think it's called Tatooine, right? That desert planet. And you're watching 
this girl be raised here and you're like wait this is a lot like luke's beginning that's that's exactly what it is that the many times especially if you have a series of movies they're actually pulling on previous scenes to create a new scene in the same way in the new testament a lot of times what you have is you have scenes that are painted in such a way that you should be thinking back to old testament scenes so one of the things with the Ascension is you don't have a lot of reflections in terms of the theology of the Ascension, but in the Old Testament, you have prophets and priests and kings ascending. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the priestly system, it's actually built off Moses going up Mount Sinai, and that was an Ascension narrative where he goes and he sees the pattern of the tabernacle upon the mountain, and God comes down in wind and fire, and that he's a Levite. That, that's a, that becomes the, the pattern by which then Aaron and his son, the Levites, the priests, will then ascend in many ways into the tabernacle and then ultimately into the temple. So those ascension narratives are all pointing towards, according to Hebrews, another high priest who is going to come, who is going to actually ascend into the true temple, the true tent, which is in heaven, the true tabernacle. So all of those narratives actually should be informing what we see happen in Acts. And I think Acts even give, and and Luke give a little hint that this is a priestly act as well, because remember in Acts it says a cloud comes and and takes them out of their sight. Now, where do we think of clouds? Well, we should think of the temple and the tabernacle when we think of clouds. At the end of Luke, Jesus stretches out his hands and he blesses them. That's a very priestly act that after the high priest would enter the presence of God, he would come out and he would raise his hands and bless the people of Israel. And so throughout the New Testament, they're painting Jesus not just as a prophetic figure, but as a priestly figure. So we could even go back in terms of the, the, we we moved on from the prophetic figure, but there's this key narrative in the Elijah and Elisha story where Elijah ascends to the heaven, right, on the chariot, and Elisha is watching him. That's an ascension narrative. And in that narrative, it's interesting because Elisha asks for, asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And I think that's, an, that, that's a pre-Pentecost type story. It's not Pentecost, but it's a, it's a picture of God's people will ultimately be his prophets who have a double portion of his spirit in the same way that Elisha had a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And that's what you see in Acts as they go on. They do signs and wonders. And so they're acting in the same kind of mold as G- the prophetic mold of Jesus. So I found it really helpful to go back to the Old Testament and begin to let some of these narratives inform the importance of the ascension for me. You then cast Jesus as king and relate that, the relation of his reign to the ascension. You also mentioned again, shadow stories of the king's ascent. How does that work? Yeah, so you have um, the Davidic king is, is the main one we probably want to turn to, which is in Psalm 2, where Yahweh, right, the nations are raging, if you remember that psalm, and they want to overthrow Yahweh and his anointed one. But Yahweh says, I have put upon my holy hill my forever king, and I, I, this is my son, my, my only begotten son, who I've set on this hill. And so throughout the promises and the hopes of the Davidic kingship, was this idea that there would be one figure who would ascend to the throne and Yahweh would never remove them from that throne. That's what he told David. He said, one of your sons will sit on the throne forever. But how can that happen? Well, it has to happen. First, they have to live forever if they're going to sit on the throne forever. And second, they do need to ascend before the Father. So 
there's these hot spots in the Old Testament, Psalm 2, Psalm 110.1, and Daniel 7, which the New Testament authors quote from just continuously. And they say that Jesus' ascension is actually the fulfillment of those promises. So David and Israel was waiting for a king to ascend to the throne. And this is where I think Israel maybe had some misunderstanding. They were waiting for an earthly king to be installed. And there will be a king who is installed on the earth. But what God showed them is that he must be installed in the heavens first. Now that rain will be manifested on the last day as he comes back down to earth. But that the ascension shows that there's still work to be done in the meantime. So the apostles, right, they asked Jesus at the beginning of Acts, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And Jesus says, no, no, not at this time. But you're going to be my witnesses as you go throughout Judea or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And right after that, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. So the ascension in that way actually is the basis for missions, the basis for us going out and telling people about the reign of Jesus. Because according to, we already mentioned this text, but Daniel seven thirteen through 14, it's at the ascent of the Son of Man that he's given a dominion, a kingdom that all peoples, all nations might serve him. And that's what we're calling people to as we go out and share the good news of Jesus' kingship. All people are welcome to his side because he's the king over all the earth. He's not just the king of Israel. He is the king of Israel, but he's the king of the whole world as well. And, and this is the basis of what you call the church, quote, a royal family. Yeah, that's right. In all of these pictures, I think there's a sense in which Christ gives us the task of being prophets, priests, and kings upon the earth. So that as he ascends, we actually, according to Colossians and Ephesians, ascend with him in some mystical but real way. That we are actually, Ephesians says, Paul says, we are seated with him in the heavens. Which means if he's the head and we're the body, we are already his representative kings and queens upon the earth. We are his royal family. We are the priests upon the earth and we are the prophets upon the earth. Now what that means is not that we... How do I put this? It's not that we um, enact his rule upon the earth and try to take over governing systems. Oh, c come on. C can't we do that? <laughs> we, we, I think it was Oliver O'Donovan who says, God has no spies. He only has those prophets who proclaim. So we are kings and queens and the royal family in the sense that we proclaim his reign. We have a politic of persuasion. We don't use the sword to do so. So it's not that we're trying to bring his reign to the earth in terms of by violence or by force. Rather, we say this king is coming back to reign one day over the earth and you can join in that. You need to confess, repent, and believe in this king, swear your allegiance to him. So we're calling people to that. Now, you do sound a little bit of a warning when you say that in celebrating the Ascension, we must not erase the pain and humiliation of the cross. And that's a temptation for us to do that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Ascension is one of those moments where if we only think about the Ascension, we can become what we could call triumphalistic. But we have to remember that the reason that Jesus is exalted is because he's first humbled. <laughs> According to Philippians 2, he first goes down by becoming a man, and then he goes down to death, and he even goes down all the way to death on a cross. 
And really what we see through the New Testament is that although Jesus Christ is reigning, that's actually not going to mean a blessed necessarily and happy life here on the earth now. What you see from the apostles is that they're persecuted. They're thrown into prison. They're killed. In First Peter, this is a maligned and slandered community. So what we see throughout the scriptures is that there's a, we could call it almost a you movement, right? Where we are made in the image of God, but that we have to humble ourselves and we have to go through carrying our own cross so that we might be exalted. That's the pattern of Jesus, and that's the pattern of every disciple of Jesus. And so, yes, the exaltation, the enthronement, we will reign with Christ on the earth, it will come. But that time actually is not now. Uh, Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. That, hasn't, that second part hasn't happened yet. All of his enemies aren't at his footstool. And so we await that day. And what we're called to do now actually is to show the kind of paradox of honor and shame, of descent and ascent of kind of shame and glory at the same time. Because what Christians recognize is that as we actually go down, as we are humbled, then Christ says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And so that's really the discipleship call from the Ascension. Uh, You said earlier, and you say in the book, that with the Ascension, the, the meaning of the Incarnation is different than it would be before the ascension happens. How does it change the incarnation? What I'm trying to point out is the incarnation is not reversed or taken away at the ascension. And so many times in Christianity, we're tempted to kind of lean towards what we call a dualistic or a disembodied view of the new heavens, new earth, almost a Gnostic. We can reach these heights where it's all about our minds and it's not about our bodies. But The incarnation shows us that God affirms embodied physical realities, and the ascension ratifies that in in an extreme sense, because the man Christ Jesus is brought up to the heavens, which is the ultimate affirmation of the incarnation. It's not that after he dies and rises from the dead, he then becomes a soul. (laughs) No, he's still a man, which means God affirms created material reality. So, That, for me, was helpful just to continue to think about our bodies are made, and yes, they're fallen, (laughs) and yes, we will receive new bodies, but there's also a sense in which the Incarnation and the Ascension affirm the goodness of our bodies. How then does the Ascension look forward and change or shape our sense of Christian eschatology, a topic you bring up later in your book? Yeah, so so one of the things we need to be careful of when we're talking about the Ascension, you know, I said it's a type of climax to Christ's work, which is true, but there's also a sense in which in Acts 1, when the angels come down and say, as you have seen him go, so you will see him come back. We are now living between the times, and so we're waiting for the ultimate conclusion. His reign has been seen, but it's not been manifested completely. And so it's not that the whole world see his, sees his reign right now. We witness to his reign, but there's a cloud still over our eyes in terms of seeing that reign. And so at the last day, in terms of the last day when Christ returns, 
his reign will be what we could call consummated or manifested completely here on the earth. But that day is not now. So we have to just be really careful to say the ascension wasn't the ultimate climax. And I think most Christians would affirm that, right? We're not, we're not in the best state now. We're not in the new heavens and the new earth. We're still waiting for that day. So while he reigns, this goes back to Psalm 110.1, while he reigns over heaven and earth and he's that that's a very true reality it's the it's the paradox of the already not yet he's already reigning completely but he hasn't consummated that reign in full yet last question how should we celebrate what should we do on ascension day yeah well i would just encourage pastors or those who don't celebrate ascension sunday even if you decide not to do that, just to make sure the ascension is part of your gospel presentation. So if, if we're if we're talking about Jesus' death a lot or his life upon the earth or even his resurrection, just remember that there's another act that needs to come after that. And that event is the ascension. And so Ascension Sunday is one of those days where we can just honestly make sure that we're talking about it and that our, our people are actually hearing about it. And so uh, in some sense, an Ascension Sunday could look like, you know, praising God for the reign of Christ that's already been um, shown to us in the Ascension. In another sense, we could be thankful that Christ is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father as our priest. In another, another sense, we could be thankful that Christ will continue to build his church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And then we can also call out, maybe in hope, and say, Lord, we, Maranatha, we long for you to return. We long for you to come back. And so it doesn't have to just be this um, kind of high, like, glory and triumph sermon. It could, it could also be a time where you reflect on your reign is not manifested here on the earth as we want it to be, and so we long for that day. And so I, I actually think when you when you preach on the Ascension, a lot of times you get to kind of the, the centrality of the gospel and Jesus' reign. The book is The Ascension of Christ, Recovering a Neglected Doctrine, out with Lexham Press. Thank you, Professor Schreiner. Thanks, Mark. So good to talk to you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.